This is Matt Osborne. This is Pat King. My name is Martin Armstrong. This is Alex Craner. This is Franco Terrazano, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. I hope everybody's weekend. Well, I hope you got what I got out of it, what you wanted. Um, I talked to a lot of people before, uh, you know, before the weekend. They were talking about one last hurrah at the lake or... I don't know, wherever you're at, hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, certainly school starting up right away and everything else. And fall season, um, I hate to say it, but is uh, right around the corner. And, uh, well, buckle up because I'm sure it'll be interesting. Don't we all know it? Well, first off, here's Can- the first uh, Canadians for Truth. They're the nonprofit organization consisting of Canadians who believe in honesty, integrity, and principled leadership in government. Um, I'm talking about Joseph, Theo, and Jamie, and I was scrolling through Canadians for Truth just to kind of, you know, see what uh, recently had caught the eye of, of them. And, uh, you know, it, uh, if you hadn't heard about Sheila Annette Lewis, uh, who lost her battle, um, you know, before she could have any um, life-saving organ transplant, you know, it, it, Theo had interviewed her a couple of months ago. And, and uh, I don't know, breaks my heart because obviously she was denied because she wasn't vaccinated. And I don't know, you know, like what other words can be said about that, you know, just pure insanity. Up next for Canadians for Truth, they have Rodney Palmer, September 20th in Calgary. So if that's uh, something you're interested in, he's a journalist. He was in the National Citizens Inquiry. Certainly, uh, you can get tickets at Canadians for Truth. Uh, .ca. And for all the latest uh, on what Canadians for Truth is up to, their interviews, etc., you can either check them out at uh, Facebook, and just search Canadians for Truth, or go to uh, CanadiansforTruth.ca for the latest on what they're up to. Uh, Prophet River, that's Clay Smiley and his team. They specialize in importing firearms from the United States of America, pride themselves on making this process as easy as possible for all their customers. The team over at Prophet River does all the appropriate paperwork on both sides of the border to legally get that firearm into your hand with all the proper paperwork and all that good stuff. If you uh, are looking for your firearms license, anything like that, if you go into the store, they have a sign-up sheet at the front. And they're located here in Lloydminster. So if you're if you're in the area and you want to do that, I know uh, I've had a few different people ask, and I was going, oh man, just go to Prophet River. They'll they'll be able to direct you in the right, to the, well, get you signed up at least, or get you in contact with them. Um, if you're anywhere in Canada, of course they can help you. All you got to do is go to ProfitRiver.com. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. Tyson and Tracy Mitchell, that's Mit, uh, Mitchell, that's Mitchco Environmental. They're looking for equipment operators. Farming experience is a bonus. They're also looking for laborers, seasonal or full-time. If you're, uh, you know, as the summer come, is slowly coming to a close, I don't want to say it's coming, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about summer going away, but, um, you know, with uh, summer slowing down here, uh, just for, for all you college students for next summer, you know, uh, there was people that earned twenty thousand plus dollars a summer working for Mitch Co. If you're looking for a summer job, keep that in the back of your mind. If you're looking for work right now, once again, looking for equipment operators, they're also looking for labor, seasonal or full time. Give them a call seven eight zero two one four four thousand. Four. Carly Kloss and the team over at Windsor Plywood, builders of the podcast studio table for everything wood. These are the guys, whether we're talking mantles, decks, windows, doors, sheds, podcast studio table. Stop into Windsor Plywood here in Lloydminster and check out some of the pieces of wood they got there. I promise you will not be disappointed. Finally, uh, let's get on. Oh, finally. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm still thinking about Sheila and that, Lewis. Sorry, that, that one hangs heavy on me. 
you know, and, uh, and one of the other things I, I think of is, you know, I've, I've been reached out to by a few different people that said, you know, Sheila wasn't the only one, you know, she was the most public, but there was others that uh, were denied as well and have been lost. And that's just, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. So without saying anything else, let's get on to our tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. He's a former sergeant detective with the Toronto Police Service, responsible for investigating Canadian police, lawyers, and politicians involved in organized crime, and a leading Canadian anti-corruption whistleblower and activist. I'm talking about Donald Best. So buckle up, here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today I'm joined by Donald Best. Donald, thank you, sir, for uh, giving me some time today. Well, thanks for having me on. This is... uh a big story i just can't believe how it's exploded yeah you know um what i was gonna say and then you know i I, this happens every time i start a podcast right we're sitting here we're not we're kind of chatting but we're not like recording i'm like ah let's just click record and away we go i mean let's let the people in on the conversation you know is uh every time i think I, i i've heard just about every nefarious like insane story in canada i'm not talking the world i'm just gonna talk about canada a new one falls down, and I'm like, what is going on? Why have I never heard of this one? And, uh, you know, it goes both ways, good and bad. I um, um, uh, The listeners won't have heard it because I'm going to bump you to the forefront on Monday. Um, but I just uh, interviewed a, another guy from Alberta who uh, was telling me he's uh, an evangelist. Uh, lots of people know him as the pulpit, uh, the oil, oil field pulpit. Anyways... He built a, a little log cabin out in the woods, and he was telling me he had 300 people there the first weekend. They had, you know, a, a gathering, and then the next time it was 700, and the next time it was 1,700. I'm like, how did I miss? It's in my own province, and I never heard this, you know? So it doesn't shock me anymore, or shouldn't shock me anymore, when I find great Canadians talking about stories in Canada that blow my brains apart. And um, yours is, well, not, I mean, what you're reporting on is just another one, and we're going to get to that. Um, but before we do, Donald, I would love for you to tell us a little bit of your story. I've re- uh, been reading your website, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, right? We could spend an hour on that. And uh, certainly, as long or as short you want to go, but uh, my audience, you know, I- I'm going to assume they might have come across you. A few of them, but for the most part, if I haven't come across you up until a week ago, I highly doubt most of them have. All right. Well, uh, you know, people are interested to see that uh, or hear that I was a former sergeant detective with the Toronto Police. I was undercover for many, many years, did anti-corruption work, finding and arresting, unfortunately, uh, crooked coppers and politicians. Crown attorneys, even a judge. And then after about 15 years of that, I went out into the big world and I did the same thing. It's tough to to think about, but there was so much demand for undercover investigations on the good guys against corruption and organized crime in the private world. So I worked for 
law firms and some corporations for a long time. I have about 40 years total experience uh, in undercover work and uh, working for law firms, the police, and other other places that I worked for too. So that was that. And, and oh, yes. And then after I say that, people are sometimes shocked to hear, oh, and I did 63 days in solitary confinement in prison every day in solitary confinement because it was the only way they could keep me alive. And people say, well, what did you do? What did, well, one thing I did is I forgot to turn off my phone. <laughs> that's my son. We're going out for wings and a beer tonight. So that's great. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, I did 63 days in solitary confinement. How is that possible? What did you do? The answer is, I did nothing. I had three corrupt Ontario lawyers fabricate evidence against me, bribe an Ontario Provincial Police Detective Sergeant to further that evidence, and then work with a corrupt judge to imprison me. And, and people say, well, how do I know that's true? Well... The commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police, Julian Fantino, also former government minister, investigated the whole thing, swore an affidavit, testified on my behalf to everything that I've told you. It's all on my website, donaldbest.ca. It was over a civil case. My company was suing some other companies. I was in Asia, traveling in Asia. No one knew. And these three lawyers claimed that they had served me with papers to appear uh, during a civil case and what the judges notice. They told the judge that. So I knew I was supposed to appear for questioning for just the routine discovery in a civil case. And so I phoned Toronto from Asia. They didn't know that I was in Asia. And I offered to... Uh, to answer the questions. And we spoke for about a half an hour. They asked me some questions. I wanted them to get a court reporter into the room. They refused. And at the end of it, they said, we're not going to ask you any questions. Uh, you have to be here in person. And then they hung up. But you remember those old conference phones that kind of looked like UFOs or spiders? Do you remember them on the tables? Anybody? Certainly, yeah. Yeah, they're difficult to work with. So they thought they hung it up, but they didn't. And I got to listen in and recorded their conversation about how they were going to fabricate evidence and lie to the judge. They were going to tell the judge that I said I wasn't going to appear I wouldn't answer questions, and the judge could ditch stick it. That's what they said they were going to tell the judge. And then they walked out of the room, and they did exactly that. They went to another room. They made up this account of what they said that they, I, had, I had said. That um, I told them I had received the judge's order, when in fact I told them 12 times, you can count it on the recording, that uh, I had not received the judge's order. I heard about it when I phoned the court yesterday. Please send me the judge's order. They told the judge that I acknowledged having received the order the day before in my hand. 
So they went to the judge and they held a secret hearing. I wasn't notified of it. During that hearing, I was convicted of contempt of court in a civil matter, sentenced to three months in prison, and a warrant was put out for my arrest. Well, I thought, no problem. I'll just go back to Canada and bring my two recordings because, you see, being from my investigative background, I know that if you make a, a voice recording on two separate machines at the same time, that a forensic expert will be able to testify that they haven't been finagled with. They are genuine. So I thought, no problem. I'll go back, tell the judge that they lied, these lawyers, and they'll be thrown in jail and I'll be free. Doesn't that sound like what should happen, John? Your story well, is, you know, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the line, but uh, reality is stranger than fiction. You know, like this, this is you're 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 like talking to every fear I have of the justice system right now. Mm. And you've lived it. And this is before COVID, I might point out. Correct. Yes, this is uh, 2010. OK, January, Carrie. I was convicted. So mm. you come all the way back. You're like, I got all the evidence. Here it is. Oh, well, well, hang on. I, I mean, I had to get back. So I had to hire a lawyer. And the lawyer is a big name lawyer. If I said it here and now, you'd know his name. And so I sent him $60,000 because that's what he wanted. So I sent it to him. And I got back. He went to the judge and they had a little chat and the judge lifted the warrant, put a stay on the warrant so that I could travel back and land at the airport without being arrested. And a lawyer met me and everything. Great, wonderful. By the way, the case that this was about was over an estate in the country of Barbados that was valued at one billion US dollars. So the stakes are high, high enough that lawyers lied, fabricated evidence, bribed a police officer, and the police officer took the money. Whose estate? Whose estate? It was a little old lady. She raised chickens. They just wanted it, though. What happened? Look, look. Her part of the estate was about 140 million U.S. dollars. A man who had the estate died, left it to his children. And in the island of Barbados, when a chicken farmer is left 140 million U.S. dollars, the politicians just came at it like, like a pack of piranhas. They really did. Even the chief justice, who I was suing back then. So anyway, they hired this big Bay Street law firm in, in Canada, two of them, and two law firms, and they did exactly what I've told you. So I went back. I stood in court. And we started having a series of hearings, and very soon... I learned that the justice system, or shall I call it the legal system. Can I pause you just for a second, Donald? Sure. I, I've, well, here comes my denseness. Why does a small lady chicken farmer hire Donald Best? She didn't hire me. Um, I actually purchased a piece of the estate from someone else who had a piece, but it was all about this lady. 
and uh, she was left this. So people were fighting for her. And the people who were fighting for her, for justice, for her, included members of her family and some friends and such. And so I became involved. Uh, I am a uh, fraud investigator. I uh, used to be a certified, I was certified as a certified fraud examiner uh, back in uh, the late 90s. And I've received several awards when I was a police officer. Typically, the frauds that I handle will sometimes have millions of exhibits, millions of documents. And I've developed for a long time a procedure, how to, how to use that, how to find the documents that matter. So I'm hired on cases like this all the time. But they couldn't afford to hire me. So I just I looked at it and I said that I would take a piece of it. I would take a piece of that case. And um, that's what I did. So all legal, all proper and such. Um, I guess it's like a, a lawyer takes a case on, on spec sometimes. So that's what I did. And that's how I became involved with that case. And it is an amazing case. It is the story of corruption on a national level of every organization, every government agency in that country, totally corrupt. And as a, sort of almost as, a, as an aside, uh, two years ago in Florida, that case had the largest civil RICO judgment in Florida history, to, to my knowledge, some say in, in real history. Um, we, Our client, that little old lady, her, her relatives actually, because she died in the meantime, as this case was before the courts for 20 years. And the judgment was over 300 million U.S. dollars. And I'm very proud of that. That was my work. That was... Uh, that was my evidence. It was my undercover work in Barbados. And it was my case administration. I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, but that was the same case that I went to prison on in Canada because of these corrupt lawyers, corrupt copper, and a corrupt judge. So I always think that if you're going to be corrupt or you're going to be, um, I don't know, a shyster, you got to be really smart because, I mean, you don't want to get caught, right? It's like, if you're going to do something, like, really shady, it's like, well, maybe we should make sure the phone's off. Or maybe we should know who Donald Best is because when you're you're going up against somebody, maybe do just a smidge bit of homework and be like, guys, look at what this guy's career has been, you know? But, you know, as the world works, that's not quite the case. And uh, when I hear this, I'm like, like these guys are these guys brilliant? Or are they just a bunch of morons in places of power? You know what? They have power. They always get away with it. They know that the club will protect them. And that that's pretty well the truth right there. Um, they are just so brazen, these type of people. Lawyers, police officers, judges, you know. Um, you want stupid, though. I'll give you stupid. The Ontario Provincial Police Officer, his name is Detective Sergeant Jim Van Allen. And, you know, I can say that and I can name all the people because I've been naming them for years and calling them the corrupt. 
He gave receipts for the bribes. <laughs> I have them. They're posted on my website. You like that? <sighs> His boss, Commissioner Julian Fantino, said <laughs> of him, he swore an affidavit, so I guess I can say this. You know, I'm all about the evidence. He basically said, had I known that this corrupt police officer did what he did, I would have charged him criminally. Now, this was years after that he found out and that I found out uh, what had happened. But he investigated all, Commissioner Fantino, former then former Commissioner Fantino. And this, that's what he said about his man. And uh, that man has a pension. He lives a wonderful life, I guess. I don't know. The lawyers, they're still going at it. I guess ripping off other people. Lying. So they've never after Every, everything after everything's come out. None of them have been charged. None of them have been. You're the guy who served sixty three days in jail. I am, and I did that because you see, the judge wouldn't, under the rules of the court, wouldn't allow the new evidence. He wouldn't reopen the case to allow the new evidence. You know the recordings that proved everything. All the evidence was a lie and fabricated. He wouldn't allow that. And the lawyer, he quit just before Christmas in 2012, leaving me on my own. Judge gave me two weeks to find a lawyer over Christmas and Hanukkah. That really worked out. So I ended up having to represent myself after having paid $60,000. The lawyer took the money, ran off, had no, no cojones. I tried to find a lawyer. Isn't this a slam dunk, like for a lawyer? I, I I don't know the world. You know, I know the world of Hollywood lawyers. You know, where it's like it's like, hey, what do you got for evidence? Well, we got all these recordings. Okay, and what does that prove? Well, it proves that I wasn't there when they said I was there, and all these different things. And I just go like, at this point, I don't need a doctorate or uh, or or pass the bar to go, Donald, give me the evidence. I'll walk in there and be like, listen, Judge, here's what we got. Nobody would take that. A hundred and thirty-eight lawyers turned me down. 138 lawyers. And this is what they told me. Some of them said, oh, oh those guys, I, I used to go to law school with them. I, I can't do it. Oh, that guy, I, I go to church with him. I go to synagogue with him. Oh, I had a case with him. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I really feel badly about this, Donald, but that big law firm, they give us cases all the time because when they get a conflict of interest they give us the case it would just ruin me other person said i can't do it i can't do it they will they will attack my family they will kill my law practice i'm sorry i'm so embarrassed i can't do it and even some lawyers who were uh who served various innocence projects they turned me down too they said that they had their firm had a policy that they won't take any cases that will ruin the careers of other lawyers. They're just not allowed to do that. The Law Society of Ontario, what a bunch of corrupt people they are, they refused to give me a lawyer, help me find a lawyer. They said, here's our list, it's online, go fish. 
They knew about this. I laid it all out, gave them all the evidence. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, I got it. So there you go. Uh, that, that's my story. And um, here I am. I have three questions, and I, I dare say, uh, folks, I have no idea where this will take us. But anyways, um, I'm just – did you know before that? Like, you investigate all these people, right? You're anti-fraud, you're anti-corruption. Anti you, you listed off pretty much every piece of government and agency and everything else. Did you know before that, or didn't you were like, I had no idea until I was, like, sitting in the crosshairs of, like, how bad it really was? I used to make my living arresting police officers. And my friends and I, we did that, not because we liked it. It's horrible. I remember one time, one Saturday morning, we had to go to a fellow officer's home and arrest him. We couldn't do it at work. There was evidence it was going to disappear. His kids are there watching the TV. His wife is in the garden. And we had to go into his home and search his home and arrest him. And he was someone who had 20 years of on the job. That's so bad. That's so bad. It, it takes it out of you. But somebody has to do it. Because if you don't do it, then everything goes just as bad as, as we've seen in some, some countries. I used to say some other countries. Things have changed. I'm sure corruption, look, corruption is all, <laughs> corruption has been there ever since, you know, two people said hello to each other. Corruption has been there. And corruption has been there in governments and such. But what we have now is we have a total failure of the foundational systems that we have to hold each other accountable, deal with each other on any level whatsoever. Look, I don't care whether you're talking about journalism, medicine, police, lawyers, plumbers. 1% are totally rotten, corrupt to the core. That's just the way it is. And 1% or what I'll call whistleblowers, or people who are, have the courage or integrity, courage and integrity to stand up and, and stop this. But the other 98%, they just look the other way. And they empower the corrupt. And this is what happened with the, the law society, with my case. It's what happens constantly with police, journalism, surgeons. You know, it, it happens all the time. But I think that in past days, although the corruption might have been there, more of it was weeded out. More people stood up and, and, and took a stance. The organizations as themselves knew that they had to take a stance to maintain credibility. Now, no, I think there's been a fundamental shift. I really do. And I, I, I love to be an optimist. But I see more and deeper corruption in all of our our fundamental uh, institutions, our foundational institutions, everything that this society is built upon. Who can you trust anymore? Who isn't corrupt? Which, which, uh, 
which profession is not corrupt. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, so yes, it was a bit of a surprise to me, um, but I knew it was coming. I could see the corruption. I knew they were going to do it to me. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Court ended. The judge lifted the stay. He says, I'm not going to take any more of the, I'm not going to look at your new evidence. You're going away for three months. He lifted the stay. Court ended. The court reporter ended. The judges left. The victorious lawyers walked out laughing. And I was left there. I was shackled on my feet and my hands, taken downstairs to the cells. Everybody knew I was an ex-copper. And uh, they threatened to rape me. They threatened to kill me. Everybody, I had to be kept aside like I was some sort of child child sex offender or something like that. They would have killed me. And that judge left the court and he went to his office and he swore out a new warrant for my arrest. He wrote it out, only one copy. He didn't put it in the court records. He made no notation of it. He just gave it to the police to take to the jail. It doubled my sentence. So the judge in a back room corruptly doubled my sentence. I was self-represented, never told me, never put it in the court record. He could have put five years on there. And I would have been stuck for five years in jail with no record of it. Star Chamber stuff. And that's what that corrupt judge did. His name was Shaughnessy. Justice J. Brian Shaughnessy. Unfortunately, he passed away. So, you know, he doesn't hear me saying his name and calling him corrupt anymore. But for 10 years, he did. And I could do it because he was, because the truth is a defense. So that's what he did to me. And the Canadian, the Judicial Council, who, who I made a complaint. Of course, I made a complaint to the Judicial Council. And they said, we're not even going to investigate it. They didn't even look at the transcripts. Corrupt all the way down. I'm curious your thoughts on Coots then. Because Coots. I just had on uh, Margaret Granny Mackay, and then I had on Jason Levine. And the envelope is going to get opened, uh, from what I understand. Nobody knows what's mm -hmm. in the envelope. I mean, I, I shouldn't say nobody. A few people know. And when you sta stare at Afar, I don't know if you like to speculate or, or anything like that, but I go, do you think the judge is going to read it? Well, I guess he is. Do you think they're going to lift the... I, I was just... Jason was explaining this to me, and I, I hope I'm getting this right. Lift the publication ban on that piece of evidence... And what the heck is in the envelope in your mind that might have everybody in such turmoil? Well, first of all, the words that have been spoken about the envelope are like a nuclear bomb going off in court. Um, the defense first spoke of the envelope and held it up. And the way I understand it came about is there was some accidental disclosure to the defense, disclosure that had been withheld, maybe by the Crown, maybe by the police, but somebody withheld this disclosure. And this piece of paper, this one document, 
was so nuclear that it had to be put in an envelope and words are spoken about it. Words are spoken about it like crime fraud. And um, uh, that's a very specific legal term about about uh, an area of privilege, and I will I will I will talk about that. But the defense used the words corrupt. That the crown attorney was at the very least a witness and maybe a defendant. Oh my goodness! And that the police were the RCMP were advised to lawyer up. So. This is this is just incredible words describing what's in this document. Um, for people, oh, and then one of the defendants, uh, Chris uh, Lysak, his lawyer t told him, and by the way, the lawyers I think are prohibited from saying exactly what the document is, but the lawyer ref told Chris Lysak that it is a golden ticket. Now, if you know lawyers and you know the, the justice system, lawyers don't say that. Lawyers don't say that to criminal defendants. They don't say it to their, their civil cases because they don't want to create expectations. That's just something that's just not done because the legal system is such a patchwork that just because you have a good case, just because you have the truth <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to win. But that's what this lawyer told one of the defendants. So that's as much as we know. That's as much as I know. What do, what do I speculate about it? And I'll, I'll give you a little background why I would speculate this. But I speculate that it just might show that somebody falsified evidence. Or maybe the evidence was falsified and the Crown knew about it and hid it. There's a couple of things. Why would you why would you say the crown was going to be a defendant? There's a couple of things that that are are I've never heard before. Never heard before in 40 years in and around the courts. 45 now. So what is it? I don't know. But it's very, very important. And that brings me to the Coots case. She asked me about the Coots case. I'll be quick about it. When I first heard about the Coots case, the Coots 4, and I saw that RCMP media briefing on the morning of February 14th, 2022, same as we all did, and there was a photo of all sorts of weapons laid out on a table and bulletproof vests and walkie-talkies and bear spray and thousands of rounds of ammunition, and it was all laid out. And they said there was a bunch of terrorists planning to kill, planning to murder police officers. I looked at that whole thing, as most Canadians did, and I said, lock it up, lock them up, throw away the key. I really did. By the time I was 24 years old, I've been to five police funerals. Two of them were my friends. So I said, lock these bastards up and throw them away. Throw away the key. 500 and some odd days later, 500 days later, Jason came to me, Jason Levine, we do a morning show together, and he said, these guys are still in jail without bail. And there's been no trial. I was astonished. 
Everybody gets bail in Canada. Everybody makes bail. In Toronto, we have an alleged cop killer out, charged with first-degree murder of a police officer in Toronto, and he's out on bail. Now, there are conditions. He's probably got an ankle bracelet, probably has to stay home and watch TV. I don't know. We have all sorts of gangbangers out on bail. People who are charged with attempted murder, drive-by shootings. We have people charged with arson, arson, forest fires. They're out on bail. But not these guys. Why not? So I started looking at it. And I came to the conclusion that the investigation, the presentation of the evidence, the media release, the charges laid, and withholding bail, all have a political agenda. That the police were so uh, influenced by politics, by politicians and the political agenda, that it uh, basically infested their case. How did I? How did I know that? I started looking. First of all, that that media photo with all those rifles laid out on the table. And, and that was very impressive when I saw it. And then I went on with my life and after February, after the convoy, like everyone else did. But then when I took a second look at that photo, I, I said, this is the setup. This entire photo is staged. How do I know that? Well, if you're arresting a group of people for conspiracy to murder police officers in furtherance of taking over the government of Canada, which is what, what this is all about. When you found an exhibit, you would protect it. You would protect it for fingerprints, from, for uh, eventual DNA examination. You would protect it from being contaminated by an, another exhibit or being taken to another scene. There's, um, you, you would note who had the, the exhibit where it is, this is called continuity of evidence. You must be able to show that whatever you present in court, where did it come from? Who found it? How was it treated? Where was it stored? How was it protected? Who examined it? What did they do after they examined it? Did they reprotect it? Was it put back in the same locker? How do you know? There's a list. Every exhibit, every piece of evidence, there are standards to, to process this evidence. But what did we see? First of all, we saw a bunch of weapons and a bunch of other exhibits taken, so they say, by the RCMP from various locations, not all in one location, brought together on, on a table in an RCMP parking garage with the RCMP car parked at an angle behind it, looks very nice, all laid out, the rifles, if you're a shooter, you would never lean a rifle uh, on the floor against a, a table because it might just one bump and it'll fall off. Yet they had, uh, it'll fall over. They had five rifles leaning against a table just to make it look very nicely and, they, and nice. And they, they had uh, the RCMP car in the background so you'd know who were the great guys who did this, a great organization. And they never processed for for, forensically, they never processed these exhibits. That's important because just that morning and referring to that 
photo, which was shown in Parliament and everywhere as justification for the Emergencies Act, they said that there was a network of these terrorists throughout Canada. And they were still trying to identify and locate all of them and even identify them. They, there were some that mysterious that, that sent text messages directing the other terrorists. This was all in the, all in the RCMP media releases. But if you're looking for other suspects for such an important case, wouldn't you fingerprint and do DNA testing of each weapon that you found? I mean, Sean, you're not a cop, but you would fingerprint the, the weapons, wouldn't you? Oh, well, yes. Actually, I don't know. Uh, crime 101 and movies and documentaries and everything has never disturbed the, the crime scene. Right. So you, just by watching TV, you know that these officers didn't do that which they should have. Why not? Because it was staged for a political purpose. That morning, they used that photo, uh, the politicians, to do two things. One, as justification for the Emergencies Act, which they put into place that afternoon. And two, for going to the uh, protesters at Coots and saying, are you part of this terrorism group? And the protesters said, no, so we're going to take down the blockade to prove it, to show. So... This was very, very useful. All of it was done for a political purpose. And then they didn't let the guys out on bail. They've got real cop killers out on bail, real people who, who, who shot people and, and burned and robbed. <laughs> they're, they're, they're out on bail, but not these guys. Why not? Well, by having them in bail, first of all, it shows that they're really dangerous. And that goes to the justification of declaring the Emergencies Act. See, we had to declare it. The judge kept them in, in jail without bail. They're so dangerous. Number two, it pollutes the jury. We know from years, decades, decades of study that if an accused is in prison for the crime that they're being charged with or some other crime, if the accused is in prison, a jury is more likely to convict because they're a bad person. We see that they're in prison. You see, so so that's that's how that works. And the third thing, uh, by keeping those people in jail, it accomplished what seizing bank accounts did too. It taught all of us Canadians a darn good lesson about opposing the government and what will be done to you and your families. These men haven't been able to work for over 540 days. They haven't been able to support their families. I don't know, but their mortgages are probably failing. They might not have paid their mortgages. Their family is being punished just as they are, just as when the bank accounts were seized. That was just to teach all of us a darn good lesson. So for those reasons, all of those reasons, I believe that this is politically motivated but there's one good last reason, too, and that's this. Two of the men knew each other. They were friends from high school. But the others didn't know each other. So the RCMP is asking us to believe 
that four ordinary Canadians who have seven children between them, businesses, jobs, surrounded by 50 police officers at the scene who were looking after the protest, were asked to believe that these guys got together for the first time, didn't know each other, and said, hey, I got us an idea. Let's murder some cops. And the others would have said, why, yes, that's a fine idea. Let's all four of us agree to it right now. Does that sound like a real conversation in Canada by guys that have businesses, 10 employees, seven children between them, no, old I, mothers at home, you, you know, that they're looking after? Does that sound reasonable? No, it, it's funny, though. It, it, it um, The picture of the guns alone, everybody went, ooh, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not, you know, and everybody took a step back. And then, you know, I sit here and I do a podcast in the province, Donald. I, I like, you know, it's just funny. Right. No, nobody's talking about it, and 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 you know, time goes by, and I I don't I, I don't know. I don't know if you assume they're they're. I don't know. Out on bail, you just you just don't even think about it anymore. You know, you go oh, hmm. court, and it's just out of the cycle of the media loop, right? And then I would right. get to, I had talked to Tamara Leach for the first time, and I said, I don't know of a person who's been held longer than the, the stint she did. And then somebody said, what about the Coots 4? And I went, oh, right, Coots what? 4, are they still in there? And yeah. then I'd forget about it again. And then I'd interview somebody else, and they'd been locked up, and I'd say, I haven't heard anybody over that. And then somebody say, what about the Coots 4? And so on and on and on, this game is gone. And so by the time I'm to you now, I'm going, it stinks. Like, it just stinks. There's something to high heaven that stinks about this, and when you put it so eloquently, the way your brain works and sees a problem now that you're staring at it, it's like, it really stinks. And the fact that, you know, in your career, I think you said 40, 45 plus years of staring at these problems, the courts are saying things that you've never heard. Now it really stinks. It's like the, the, the you know, but then I go back to the story you've just told for the beginning of all this. And I go, but just because it stinks doesn't mean that you get the outcome that we think we should get. Unless the public keeps this in the forefront, uh, you know, in the papers, in the in the public uh, mind, I guess, on the forefront of people. Because if you forget about this, pretty soon they can sweep it deeper under the rug, even if people are screaming to high heaven, because that's what's happened in the past. I, I just got to listen to your story and go like, but you had all the evidence. You had everything, and they didn't care. Remember that, that uh, what, what was the name of the commercial group? They always just say, but wait, there's more on television. Remember those those yes. commercials? Papil, yes. Papil's Pocket Fisher, whatever. Yeah. Okay. But wait. But wait, there's more? There's more, Sean. Yes, there's more. <laughs> and here it is. So a couple of weeks ago, a RCMP officer, I wasn't there. I'm just going by what people told me from the court. RCMP officer gets up in court, and he's – one of the men is charged with threatening police. And what the police say and what the police said under oath, apparently, is that they were standing there talking with this man, one of the accused, and the man said words to the effect, I want to take your gun, and uh, the inference being, and shoot you. I'm going to take your gun and shoot you. Okay. 
And that, that's what the court was told. But wait, someone was taking a video. And what the video actually shows is the same situation, except the accused says, wow, something like, wow, that's a really nice, really nice gun. Wish I could afford one. But the cop gave false evidence to be able to charge, arrest and charge him. Okay, so that's, that's, that's coming out. That's going to come out. But wait, there's more. Part of, I, I know, I, I can't help it. Part of it, part of the evidence that was gathered that resulted in the search warrants, that resulted in the arrest and charges of the Coots Four, that resulted in the declaration of the Emergencies Act. So you, you, you've got that, have you? I've got you've that. got you, you've got the the evidence led to the search warrants, led to the arrests, led to the charges, led to the the Emergencies Act and the press release and the waving around of that photo. Well, that all began when they, or at least a good part of it is, they sent in a couple of really good-looking RCMP undercover officers, girls. Well. We used to do this all the time. When uh, when we were uh, working undercover back uh, 83, 84, there was a period, and you can read about it on my website or in the newspapers of the time, when we were allowed to pretend to be corrupt. My friends and I were inserted into the largest uh, detective office, plainclothes office in Canada, 52 Division, Toronto Police probably still is the largest. We were inserted in there because the chief knew there was a problem. And for some reason, the chief thought we were honest. And we were. And that's why we, we were inserted. Not altogether. Dribbled into the squad over a number of months. And so we pretended to be just as corrupt as some of the other guys in the squad. We took thousands and thousands of dollars. We were paid, I think it was... Uh, memory memory strains right now, but I think it was $100,000 cash in a year if we would just look away from one of the Chinese gambling houses. We didn't have to do anything. We just had to look away and stage occasional stage raids so that we would look like we were doing something. And when we staged the raids, uh, the gambling den, they were told that we were coming. They would pay guys $50 a piece to be arrested so that when we ran up the stairs, we would be able to find a game and arrest them and take them away. And then they would get a $50 fine. And then the same crowns who arranged that would have a nice evening out at a Chinese restaurant with their family. How's that? I feel so, like I've seen this movie, you know? You've anyway. seen this movie. You've seen this movie. I feel like I've seen it before. You know. have seen it, and we've seen it from the inside. But back to my point about the girls. You know, we could take the money. We could take the vacations. We could take the condos. We could take anything. But one thing we couldn't take would be women. We we just can't do that. We're even undercover. We just can't take the women. And we were offered women. So we had to bring our own. And we brought some good-looking undercover police officers who pretended to be our squad groupies. 
and we pretended we'd pass them around and they went to parties and we all got drunk up and had a great time and did the same thing that all the corrupt police officers were doing, except we had it on video and we had it on audio and everything like that. But we found that when we brought the good looking girls, the mafia members and the organized crime members we were infiltrating and meeting with, immediately they trusted us because it's just kind of natural. I think it's just the way God made us. You know, you, you're, you're married for 20 years. You love your wife. You never have eyes for anybody else. You never would. You love your family and everything. But when that girlie walks in the room, well, you just might have a little glance at that because that's the way we're made. Well, the police know that. So they send in the girlies all the time. And they sent in the girlies. <laughs> they sent in the girlies to the Coots Road, uh, to the Coots protest. And they were good looking girls. I've seen a photo of one and they are good looking girls. And, um, you know, they were riding around on people's backs with a can of beer in their hand and waving a flag. Oh, they fit right in. And then they went back after who knows how many hours and every day. And, and then they um, reported what they'd heard, that there was, I suppose, evidence of this terrorist organization and they were going to murder cops. That's part of the, part of the, uh, the evidence. But you know what? They didn't have any recording devices. Now, 40 years ago, recording devices were five-pound blocks of aluminum, reel-to-reel tape recorder called a Nagra, and you had to shave your leg and tape it to the inside of your leg, which is why everybody always grab your privates. You see a bunch of criminals meeting together. They're always going around grabbing each other's privates. It's funny, eh? But they're looking for recording devices because they were as big as a paperback and weighed two or three or five pounds, depending on what you had. Now, everybody has an iPhone. Everybody has an iPhone. Everybody has an Apple Watch. You can get recording devices that are earrings, pens. They go for days and days and days. My favorite, this thing is, uh, this thing is 10 years old, but I use this. It's an MP3 player. It has some good blues on it too, so if anybody finds it. But it's also a recorder. I just put it in my shirt. Just like that. You can't see it. Done. And now I'm recording. But this is not a sophisticated device compared to what's out there now. So the officers made a decision or their superiors made a decision to not wear recording devices. What's that mean? It means they can script them. Scripting is a police term that means to falsely say someone said something. If an officer, if you hear about an officer scripting someone, it means that maybe he said there was a, or he or she said there was a false confession. You know, he confessed, she confessed. Or maybe uh, they said that they didn't have a red car, thus showing that the red car they knew had knowledge of the red car that they shouldn't have had knowledge of, whatever you want to say. That's called scripting. It's illegal. It's dishonest. But it's done. So it's a big red flag to me when they go into this 
this major undercover organization failing to equip themselves which that with, with that that they know will gather the truth we know that they didn't at least they're not tendering it in evidence we know it's not tendered in evidence that means they didn't do it or what they're telling the court is something different so i've listed a number of red flags to you and i believe that this this case is going to collapse like a house of cards now there are some other charges laid uh, i think somebody is charged with maybe i'm not quite sure but maybe having a magazine uh, that holds 10 rounds instead of the required five or whatever it is something like that maybe maybe somebody would be convicted of that i'm not saying they're innocent of of every charge i'm not saying every man is innocent of every charge but this this nonsense that a bunch of ordinary canadians were willing to commit an act of terrorism and leave behind their businesses and and wives and children and and they just met well how true does that ring to you sean how true i'm going i i listen to your 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 mind speak donald and i go None of us stand a chance when a guy who's trained to see this doesn't see this walks away and goes, yeah, you know, whatever. And as soon as you get drawn into paying attention, you're like, and the story goes on, and the story goes on, and let me tell you, the story goes on, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And at this point, there's so many red flags going here. The red flags are sinking the ship. Like, I mean, it's it's like, oh, right? And now like, we mean, have this envelope. This and envelope. now we have, right. Wow. So, yeah, I, I brought you on here to talk about something completely different, but you you have me so fascinated now. I'm like, oh my god, it's all the same. It's all the same, Sean. True, very true. It's all it the same. Very true. Yeah, with with the women, you were saying mm -hmm. that um, sure. the, the the and I'm going to go back to to your story to take the you know just go back to when you bring the women along when you're undercover and you're trying to fit in and blend in, as soon as you had the women, it's like they accepted you. Oh, Is yeah. that, I, I oh, think yeah. I heard that correct, yeah. yes? That That's right, and and what you didn't hear me say, but I'll say it because it's true, it's in the book, is that uh, maybe sometimes the woman gives a little wink, or maybe she reaches under the table and gives him a little squeeze. You don't think undercover police women do that? No, I I, th I, I go. Uh, you get it, don't you? Well, yeah. I, I go. You're you in it. one of the most dangerous places in the world, right? Sure. And if you if you aren't a chameleon, you're probably dead, or you're never getting back in there. Or, could be. Could be or, a lot of things. Could be a lot of things. Yeah. So. I guess it's just but, I I don't know Donald I'm, I'm like I. It's funny, like I, I, you know, I've, I've been following you now on Twitter for what, 10 days? I don't even know, folks. Like I just, I stumble across the story out in Ottawa. I want to talk about it. I, and I, I realize it's all the same, but that's, I'm like, I've never heard of this. Anyways, and then you just, this is, I'm like, I don't even have to say anything at this point. Just let Donald serenade us with the most scary gripping things in Canadian policing history where you're just like, oh. 
But it's normal. Sean, that's the problem. It's normal. Well, I, this guy didn't think it was normal. This guy, you know, like I'm just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I what I stared at for so long in the world, but I didn't think, you know, oh, it's down in L.A. Or it's over in San Francisco. It isn't sitting here in little old Alberta. But the more people I talk to, you know, I've talked to whistleblowers and I've talked to, you know, the list goes on. And you're like, man, like this is, this is something else. One of the most popular articles that I've written on, on my blog, which is donaldbest.ca, donaldbest.ca, plug, plug. Um, one of the, one of the articles that is super popular is 9-11 taught me everything I need to know about COVID. What? 9-11 taught me everything I need to know about COVID? Well, there's a story about 9-11 that came and then it disappeared. But it's true. And it's that when that first airplane hit the tower, at 30 miles visibility, anybody who was a critical thinker knew that that was a deliberate act. They knew. And as a pilot, I knew. Anybody knew. But people stayed in their seats. And then the security for the, for the, uh, the tower that was not hit came on the speakers and said, stay where you are, stay in your offices. We don't want to restrict the uh, emergency personnel, stay in your offices. And the people who stayed in their offices obeyed authority and died. Some of the stories of the people who uh, looked at each other and went, no, I'm leaving. One man uh, went into a, a, a meeting that was held and they were still holding the meeting if you can believe that, he grabbed his girlfriend and she didn't want to go. And he ended up physically forcing her into the elevator. Oh, that's another thing. You're always told, take the stairs in an emergency, right? Hmm? Correct. Well, the World Trade Center, the stairs are an hour and a half. And the elevator was only 20 minutes. Those that took the elevator lived. Those who took the stairs died. And then when they got down to the bottom, they found the security and the port authority police actually locking the doors and not letting them out because the responders are coming in and we don't want the, everybody out on the streets. So people found ways they, they went into emergency exits. But it's absolutely true that the police refused to let people out of the World Trade Center. So, you know, those who obeyed authorities died. Those who determined their own path and thought critically lived. That's everything I had to know about COVID. Um, and that's, that's the way it is. So that's one of my most uh, popular articles right now. Sorry for running on, but um, How are you I just still... look at the world differently. How are you still alive, Donald? I feel like, they, you know, when you talk about being locked away and they just throw yeah. away the key, you know, I once interviewed uh, um, Martin Armstrong. He got locked away for 12 years. And uh, 
Certainly, is he crystal clean? Uh, I mean, we can argue about that, but um, 12 years of a man's life for what he, uh, you know, they alleged and everything else and blah, 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 blah. And some might argue, how the heck is he still alive, right? But I hear you talking and, and the sense you're making and the things you're pointing out, and maybe you've thought about this lots, maybe, it, I don't know. I'm just like, you know, this is... Well, this is not the way I thought my Friday, or well, as we record this, it'll come out on a Monday. This is not the way I bet you a lot of Monday people going to work, whatever they're doing, walking the dog, doing the dishes, thought they were going to have their, their morning start because I'm going, holy Mackinac. I'm all about the evidence. And, you know, for everything I say, the evidence usually is on my website or something. I'm all about evidence. My entire life, my entire professional career has been about evidence. And um, that's why I'm able to name those names and say they're corrupt and the evidence is all there. And, uh, you know, here we are 10 years later and, and none of those lawyers are going to sue me. That's why. So, Helen Groose, shall we yeah. talk about Detective Groose? <laughs> Let's talk about Detective Helen Groose. That's what I, you know, to the listener, this is why I was bringing Donald on. I was bringing him on to talk about this detective out east that I'd never heard her name before. And then I started reading the story and I'm like, this, you know, she's charged under the Police Service Act with discreditable conduct for allegedly conducting unauthorized investigations into nine sudden infant deaths where she sought to know the vaccine status of the mothers in January 2022. I don't know much more than that. I mean, certainly I've read some now and since then, but I would say I'd never heard her name. I'd never heard the story at all. Okay. So I'll give you some background on Detective Helen Groose and what I've been able to learn. She doesn't talk La Presse. Her, her people don't talk La Presse. Her lawyer doesn't talk La Presse, her lawyers. And, well, I can't say that's a... I can't say that's a, a bad strategy. Excuse me for a moment. So Helen Groose, she is a detective with the Ottawa Police Service in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. She has about 20 years on the job and she is assigned to the SACA unit. That's the Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Unit. And Sean, that's a tough job. They assign only the best there because you can just imagine child abuse, sexual assault, um, the victims, very, very special people are, are in that unit usually. And Detective Groose is one of those special, special people. Not only she had training uh, and, and had awards, but but you hear some of the people talking about her, that, that her, her empathy, but also her ability to relate to victims, but also her discernment. Because, hey, you know, some sexual assaults never happened. That's a part of the job, too. And she's just, from what we hear, a marvelous detective. And she's now assigned to, I think I, I heard a uh, holdup squad robbery. That's another, that's another tough, tough beat. Only the, the good ones go there, the good detectives. 
So anyway, um, prior to the fall of 2021, she was known as a great detective professional. Uh, her um, annual reports or annual reviews were made into evidence last week. We had five days of this internal hearing last week. She's, now, she's charged under the Police Services Act, which is a provincial offense. It's an internal tribunal. It's not, uh, it's not a court. Uh, the judge is called the trials officer or the hearing officer. Prosecutor's not called the crown. It's the prosecutor. But I, I refer to the judge as the judge. But he's not a judge. He has no legal experience. He's a man of, uh, uh, he's a retired Ottawa police superintendent. By everything I've heard, by all accounts, he was a darn good copper when he was on the street. I mean, a really good, good man and um, a good leader. That doesn't make him a judge. And, and I'll talk more about that later. So anyway, Detective Groose, her annual reviews that we heard are excellent, excellent, excellent. We are so grateful to have a detective of this caliber working with the squad, this actual words, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that, that's what it is. And we're recommending her for promotion. Well, that was before COVID, September of 2021, when she wrote Chief Slowly a letter concerning the vaccine mandates. The Ottawa police were going to or had mandated these experimental injections. And she wrote the chief an open letter. It was just widely distributed, basically saying that while she believed that COVID and was hurting people and had pro people had died from it, and it's real, um, that medical experts or some are being shut down, that it's experimental or new. In any event, she wrote, Detective Groose wrote a letter to the chief questioning the mandates and saying, if the police service is going to mandate these injections, what happens if someone is injured or died? Will the police service take liability? Will you look after our families? And when, when she said that, we heard evidence at, at the recent hearing that her immediate supervisor, uh, Sergeant Mark Andre Gee, ordered her to never speak in the unit again about vaccines or COVID. Now that produced a gasp in court because we had the supervisor of the unit responsible for investigating sudden infant deaths telling his officers COVID had nothing to do with the sudden infant deaths the vaccine had nothing to do with sudden infant deaths, and I better not hear about it from you. How about that? That was a real gasp in the court. So anyway, uh, then they started to ostracize her because she refused to reveal whether she would have the COVID vaccination or not. And they started complaining about her. Her fellow officers started complaining about her. They said that they were worried about whether they would get COVID from her. So they transferred her to work out of sort of like another police station, but not with the rest of the unit, just put her away in a back room in a warehouse with a little office. So they did that. And then when Christmas came, we heard all this evidence. 
when Christmas came, they prohibited her from coming to the unit Christmas party. They assigned her to work. Not the new guy, not the guy, not the girl with five years on. No, a senior detective was told, you're working Christmas or Christmas, uh, the Christmas party, and you're not coming to the party. Here's a, here's a bottle of wine for you. Enjoy it. So she was being ostracized. Meanwhile, like the diligent detective she is, she noted that there were nine infant deaths, a group of them. Now, these are the only ones, these are only deaths that are uh, investigated by the police or responded to by the police. If usually if uh, an infant dies in the hospital or has been transported to the hospital, the police don't become involved. So there are other sudden infant deaths, but in terms of the sudden infant deaths that the Ottawa police investigated, we heard that in 2019, there were three. And in 2020 and 21, um, uh, 2020, 21, there were nine. So sudden infant deaths tripled. What happened? Detective Gruce wanted to know. And by then we were starting to hear, you, I, the people in general, were starting to hear that there were some problems with these so-called vaccines. They were different. They were mRNA vaccines. They even had to change the definition of vaccine to use them and that they were emergency approved, not normally approved through normal normal things. And then we started to hear rumors of what became the Pfizer documents. And those rumors started in December of 2021. Turned out they were true. There were some leaks. And it turned out that, uh, and I might be slightly wrong about the numbers here, but in the initial trials of the Pfizer vaccine, something like 28 of 33 babies being followed died in the womb, fetuses died in the womb, miscarriages. And then uh, I think of the babies that were born, only one survived. I might be slightly wrong on the news, but something like that, 28 out of 31, something like that. So Detective Gruce thought, wow, I, I better look into this. And she started to. She looked at the computerized files uh, that the police have on these desks. And, you know, she's allowed to. Police officers have great autonomy. And even the judge and the professional standards unit basically said, yes, she's allowed to, despite what the uh, CBC said in its article and, and, and such. And we'll get to that if we have time. But police officers are allowed to do this. She was allowed to do that. But what she did was on January 30th, 2022, she picked up the phone and she called one of the parents, the father of one of the dead infants. And what she said to him, we don't know. There is a, a court order that prohibits me from naming any of the parents or the dead infants. And I won't do that. And anyway, um, uh, from what we've heard, the phone call was both cordial and appreciated, naturally. You know, if, you're, if you had that tragedy, if, if your baby died, wouldn't you be at least 
appreciative that the police were looking into it when you want to know why. And, and so the parents would naturally be appreciative of the police looking into it. That was on January 30th. Somebody complained. One of the officers uh, in her unit, probably, that's speculation on my part, but it's not speculation that it was a police officer complained to the, to the professional standards unit or to the chief, and an investigation was launched the, by the professional standards unit. Now, there's more, folks. It turned out that those nine sudden death investigations were not properly done. They were not done to the World Health Standards. And the, the questioning that was done of the parents was not complete. So, in other words, Detective Groose revealed that in each of these investigations, it was improperly done. Now, whether that was because, because of incompetence or sloth, laziness, or because of an ideological tunnel vision, I don't know, but they weren't correctly done. That was on January 30th. Somebody complained, and on February 4th, she was suspended for this, quote, unauthorized investigation. So on February 4th, she's suspended. I proved and discovered later on that in March, the Public Health Agency of Canada contacted the Ottawa police and sought to interfere and influence the Detective Bruce case. Two, uh, one senior employee, uh, senior researcher and uh, manager was one of that, one of those people. And uh, the other was uh, someone who has written some, some uh, papers in conjunction with that first manager. I'll say no more uh, about them, except that I saw during one of the televised hearings or one of the internet hearings in September that the Public Health Agency of Canada was looking into it. I, I, I saw this doctor looking into it on duty with a public health agency account. You could see that. It was uh, by Microsoft Teams. So I called her up and I spoke with her. And I also spoke with, with the person who did the research with her. And I recorded both of those conversations. Those conversations are published along with the recordings on my website. So as I say, Sean, I'm, I'm an evidence guy. If I say something, I usually have an exhibit to back it up. So I'll take us to the trial now, or I'll take us to her interview. In May, May 12, 2022, Professional Standards interviewed Detective Bruce for a total of three hours. We heard every minute of it in uh, court, and it was stunning. That was on Monday. It was absolutely stunning because we heard a couple of things. One, we heard that, that Sergeant Mark Gee, her uh, supervisor, had prohibited her and, by extension, all the other police officers from even considering that the vaccines might have, had, might have been a cause in any sudden infant deaths. Wow. And the other thing that we heard 
and saw was a stack of papers. I don't know. It looked like it was maybe a thousand pages. I'm not quite sure. It might be a little less than that. And they were tendered as evidence. And what this was is during that May 12th, 2022 interview with professional standards, Detective Gruse gave them a ram stick with all those documents and all her research on it, indicating that she was conducting a criminal investigation in regards to sudden infant deaths and, vac and these vaccines, and also just the vaccines themselves, conflicts of interest. In there were some Pfizer documents. So that's right, the Pfizer documents, which for people who don't know, the US court ordered Pfizer to reveal all of their documentations on their mRNA COVID vaccine and the tests and, and the communications and everything. I think they're still coming out. He, he, he told them to reveal them at 50,000 pages or documents a month, I, I forget. Anyway, in on May 12th, Detective Gruse provided the Pfizer documents that she had and other documentation to professional standards showing that she was conducting a criminal investigation of these vaccines and also told them that the chief at the time he was gone, he left uh, on February 14th, I think, or 15th, 2022, in the middle of the convoy, that she had met with the chief uh, about vaccine injuries on the police on the police service. And she was investigating and also going to supply him with a report. So that's what we heard. And what do you think? Oh, and, and don't forget, when Detective Gruse was charged, was suspended, her investigation ended. She was ordered not to do any more investigations into sudden infant deaths. She was ordered. You know, you're, we're having an investigation on you and your conduct. This is in February, February 3rd, 4th. You will, you will cease your investigative efforts and your investigation. But she had collected all this material, so she gave it to the professional standards sergeant, uh, Sergeant Art Butnot. So what do you think the sergeant did with all that criminal investigation evidence? What do you think he did, Sean? Buried it, didn't read it, stuck the ram somewhere where he didn't care about? Yeah, that's pretty well it. How'd you guess? It's pretty much played out in everything from uh, about 2021 till now. Anything that comes out that even resembles damning information on the vaccine, it's the same story over and over and over again across all professions. Right. Well, if I still had my badge and authority, I would be looking at investigating or charging that sergeant with neglect of duty. He was provided, and all of them were provided, right up the chain, with evidence of a criminal nature regarding the vaccines. And they did nothing. That's neglect of duty in my books. I'd charge him, absolutely. So, 
Then we had the hearing start. Now the hearing started in August and the, uh, the police service, they put some of them on the internet. They put them on all of them in the fall of 2022. So they put all of them on, they broadcasted on um, Teams, Microsoft Teams, and they allowed journalists and the public to watch the hearing. I was part of it, I reported on it. It even attracted the attention of um, legendary New York police detective, Frank Serpico. Remember Al Pacino playing the movie Serpico? Actually, well, yes, you're, okay. you're bringing up pop culture, certainly. Yes, yes, okay, well, they never made a movie about me. How about you? Hollywood never made a movie about me, but they have one about Serbico because he's legendary. Anti-corruption. He uh, caused the, he reported corruption in the police force, New York Police Department. Uh, the whole NAP commission in the early 70s was brought about by him. He testified. Uh, his colleagues, his police colleagues, set him up to be shot in the head, in the face, and he was. And uh, legendary, legendary guy. He's paying attention to the Detective Groose case. He started to pay attention in the fall of 2022. And he said that this was a, a real breakthrough in police, police transparency, which, which it was. A real breakthrough in police transparency uh, that they were going to have this internal hearing broadcast. Well, that stopped, didn't it? stopped in December because there's a cover-up going on. And what Frank Serpico says now is very interesting. And I'm just going to scroll down here and get it because it's, it's on my uh, website, donaldbest.ca, because I want, to, I, want to, I want to exactly quote with accuracy what Frank Serpico says. First of all, in regards to the work, that the investigation that Detective Helen Groose was doing and they shut it down. And the fact that they're not televising or not broadcasting the hearing anymore. This is what New York detective Frank Serpico says. Incompetence or criminality will go to any length not to be exposed, even at the cost of innocent infant lives. Even at the cost of innocent infant lives. And what he's referring to, of course, is the fact that the Ottawa Police Service shut down the only investigation into whether or not these vaccines were harming mothers and babies in the womb and breastfeeding babies. And now, of course, we know that they are. Who says so? The Center for Disease Control and all sorts of people. We have all sorts of evidence out there. And the Pfizer documents tell that they knew before they approved this stuff, before they said we had to have it, before they mandated it, they knew it killed babies in the womb and breastfeeding babies. They knew that. That's criminal, which is why I say that it's neglect of duty right up to the top for police officers to ignore this this evidence now. Neglect their duty. Because it's criminal well, in Canada. Very least, it's criminal negligence causing bodily harm. At the very least, might be something much, much more. But at the very least, that's enough to get started. So, 
Now we just had the first five days of the hearing last week. It was supposed to be over. They never even got the first three witnesses cross-examined. You see, there was a, a previously, there was a, um, a prosecutor assigned to the case, and that prosecutor was removed and replaced by another prosecutor. And this, the behavior of, of this prosecutor had everybody in, in just wonderment uh, last week during the hearings. It, it was just, you couldn't believe what you're hearing. She was objecting to questions before the defense even formed the words, formed the questions. The two defense counsel, boy, are they good. They are really good. Detective Gruce's counsel, excellent, excellent people. Anyway, uh, one of them would stand up to ask a question with a paper in their hand, and the prosecutor would object and object and object and object. It was, it, I've never seen behavior like this before. And I think if a real judge were present, a lot of it would have been, uh, would, would have just stopped. But this is not a judge. This is a hearing officer. And frankly, the courtroom was out of control. The prosecutor was out of control, not the defense, the prosecutor. The prosecutor remained, I'm sorry, the defense remained professional. The prosecutor at one point got up and made a statement to the court that she believed or feared, she feared that one of the defense lawyers was going to physically assault her because of the way he was looking at her with his eyes. Huh? That's, that's, that's just right out of, that, that's crazy city. The first witness, Sergeant Marc-Andre Guy, at the end of the first day of testimony, he was just eviscerated by the defense team. That's a good word. His credibility was smoke. And it, to the point where the prosecutor at the end of the day stood up and asked the judge to call another witness so that she could, quote, rehabilitate this witness, Sergeant Mark Andregui. Well, Sean, when you have to, with your first and star witness, after a day of cross-examination, have him so gutted that you have to try and, and, and re, you know, rehabilitate him, that was pretty well what the, all the evidence was all about. I mean, the the case is a house of cards. So does it give you hope then? Like, are you like listening, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching it go down and you're going like, man, the incompetence or, you know, uh, what was the other word you used? Incompetence and? Incompetence, sloth, uh, I don't know, uh, agenda-driven agenda politics. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. Um, when you see this playing out in the court, are you at, at all hopeful or, you know, I don't know, optimistic that the right thing is going to come down from it. Because you're, you're seeing it play out, you know, the, the coup's four, you know, and, we, and you, we, we talked about that right off the hop. And now you're seeing uh, Detective Gross. Gross? Gross? Gross. Gross. Don't know why I can't Gross. say it, folks. It's, it's spelled Gross, but it's Gross. I should, so just I, think of, I should just think of the kids in Despicable Me, and I'd have Gru and just Gross. Anyways, um you're seeing this play out in Ottawa. You're seeing a different uh, story play out here in Alberta. You're following them by sounds, but very closely. 
you have a history of, of following the evidence. Are you at all optimistic that uh, here in, you know, in very short time, considering how long we've been all staring at, you know, you, you talk about the Pfizer uh, taking 75 years to release the data and then being ordered, no, you will do it in, in this short period of time. Are you optimistic that uh, things are, could really start to come out or, or be laid bare for the public in, in, a, in a, I don't know, a truthful way? But wait, there's, there's more. more. Of course there is. Yes. Well, um, <clears throat> on Friday, something absolutely unbelievable happened. I have, uh, I've never seen this before in all my years around course. It just, it just keeps getting better, more. I, I don't know. Um, I just, I just don't know what to tell you. Um, we heard on Friday afternoon, the defense stood up. And this is after a particularly uh, scathing bunch of, of interferences by the prosecutor. They're trying to, to uh, cross-examine this police witness who was on the stand, a fellow detective of Detective Groose, who we found out made uh, false statements about her, who spread rumors about her, who who uh, was really uh, responsible for for part of the 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 the, um, the atmosphere, if you will, and the the action, and also uh, getting the police to service to stop what Detective Groose was doing, this, this investigation. So why, why did we see on Friday this happened? The defense team stood up and announced in the middle of the cross-examination words to the effect, the prosecutor is, is, is being unreasonable because she is the sister-in-law of this police witness. What? They took the prosecutor who was assigned the case off, and out of the four or five prosecutors that the police department could have used, the police, police service could have used, they chose the sister-in-law, a family member, okay, a woman who is married to the witness's brother who has, you know, Christmas and birthdays and everything, live in the same city. Yeah, uh, what we would call that is a giant conflict of interest, yes? Yes. So I was stunned. I thought that this, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that our readers or, or that our listeners really know how big a conflict of interest this is, how big a no-no it is. It just tears apart the credibility of the prosecution. When you have a prosecutor who is a family member to one of the witnesses or one of the accused, it changes everything because this prosecutor was trying to protect their sister-in-law. So as a result, maybe they do things differently that don't do things or do things that they wouldn't have done or, or should have done 
it it just can't be. And I thought that this this defense team, look at what they discovered at the last minute, and they're standing up now and delivering this kill shot. Well, no. Apparently, this was known about months before. The defense objected, but the the, the court ruled that it was okay. So the judge absolutely knew that the prosecutor, months before the trial, that the prosecutor was sister-in-law to one of the one of the primary witnesses. And yet he allowed it to happen. He made a written decision, which I've asked for, and I hope I'll get. This, this brings everything into disrepute. The prosecutor, the police service, and I'm sorry to say, the judge. It, it just, as one of my friends who is a King's counsel, a lawyer, uh, a person of, of decades and decades has, has uh, won in every court up to and including the Supreme Court of Canada. I told him about this and he just said, full stop, stop. It has to stop. The, 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 there must be either a retrial. If this were a criminal trial, there'd be a retrial or they just throw it out. And the people who arranged this and did this would be under investigation including the judge if he let that it just it it's just a non-starter it totally eviscerated so am i getting this right you you'd think you would think you'd be hopeful optimistic even except yeah. the world instead of operating the way it should we live in the upside down where things that should make sense no longer are being guided by you know what historically has been like the that's a non-starter you don't go past there except we're past there and nobody understands except we keep going you know you asked me do i have hope that that this trial will will yeah. go the right way well that's my answer yeah that's my answer i don't i don't see I, it's like a show trial in the soviet era yeah it's kafkaesque it's just un it's just unbelievable. It was jaw dropping. Now that courtroom was full every day last week. Every day, people are very Actually, really interested. You know, in this. you know. Sorry, yeah. I, I apologize because you, you just you're you know. I, this has been a long time. I don't know. Maybe I just talked about this recently, or maybe it's been a very long time, folks. I used to talk about Solzhenitsyn all the time in the Gulag Archipelago. Sure. And in there, there's court cases where you're just like you're reading it, and you're kind of like you know, it's almost make believe because. You know, it's a book, and you're kind of like, did that really happen? And here I am sitting today in 2023, 100 years ago, or 100 years past, maybe a little less, from certainly the beginning of about 100 since the start of the atrocities, but certainly not from the end of them. Anyway, yes, comrade. And I'm hearing this, and I'm listening to you, and I'm going, holy crap. Like, you know, like, holy crap, Donald. Um, I'm watching time with a, with a couple minutes left here before I, I let you off. Is there anything, you know, I, all I'm doing, <laughs> I'm sitting here and I'm going like, what is it up with the last couple of interviews, folks? I was like, I'm going to need <sighs> to carve out five hours so I can just sit here and be regaled the stories of what is going on in Canada because, uh, you know, 
an hour and, 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 well, I don't know, an hour and whatever we're at isn't enough because there's just such, such absurdity going on all over the place. It just keeps going. And saying that, with a minute left, what, do, what, do you, what final thought would you like to leave the viewer uh, or the listener with? And I'll promise him this, we'll have Donald back, okay? So, Donald, with, uh, with, a, couple, with, with a minute left, what, what, what final thought do you want to leave him with? Everything changes when the public is at a trial to witness it. Everything changes. The behavior of the judge, everything changes. This Detective Groose case is so important for a couple of reasons we haven't even got to. Number one, police officers are supposed to be free to investigate according to their duty and experience. They're supposed to be able to, to set their own agenda and investigate whatever subject they want to, not be directed by politics. In this case, Detective Groose, her investigation was stopped by politics. And when, when politics enters police investigations, justice goes out the window. That's number one. Number two, we know that infants at the breast have been injured and killed. And the Ottawa police stopped an investigation into that in the Ottawa area. How many infants have been injured because the investigation has been stopped? How many have been injured continually since, since the investigation was stopped? Pay attention to this trial. Detective Helen Groose in Ottawa, it's so important. It should be on the internet. It should be broadcast. They're trying to hide it. Write, write to the police service and demand that it be made public. And that's my final thoughts on this. And I, uh, I just uh, hope that everyone will pay attention to this case and write the Ottawa Police Service. And it's, it's all on my, uh, my blog, donaldbest.ca, or my Twitter feed, donaldbestca. And you to can the follow the case there. To the listener, if you if you just Google Donald Best, it'll take you right to his website. It's nice and easy. It's not hard to find. Um, if you go on Twitter, Donald Best, you can follow right along with it. And certainly that's how it got propped up into my feed, and that's how you come to this spot and everything else. I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing this, Donald. And, um, well, you got my attention. It wasn't, wasn't uh, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to pay attention to what's going on in Canada because... For some reason, it seems to be harder and harder every day to find that. I'm sure there's lots of different things we could go into that topic. But I uh, appreciate you uh, coming on and doing this. And uh, we'll be paying attention here. And, and we'll look forward to the next time uh, you come on um, um, to share some of your uh, insights on what's happening here in Canada, especially in the, in the courtrooms. Thanks so much for letting me speak with your audience. And we'll see you next time, Sean. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode has been brought to you by CalRock Industries. With new used and refurbished oil and gas equipment in stock, CalRock is your best bet when it comes to finding equipment that fits your needs, is within your budget, and is ready as soon as you need it. They can even custom manufacture tanks and other equipment for your specific application. They're located here in Lloydminster, but I'm sure they can serve you wherever you are at. All you got to do is go to calrock.ca 
for more information. I also want to remind people that Patreon, I uh, just started posting back on it. Uh, we're going to give her a go here for the next six months. So if you want to uh, go down in the show notes, you can click on that. Feel free to support. Don't support. It's behind a paywall. So uh, the money is coming back to the podcast. And we got a little behind the scenes uh, action happening there. So love to see and hear your guys' comments on that. Either way, we'll catch up to you on the next episode.